Our reading of God's Word this morning comes from Luke chapter 7, verses 1 through 10. Hear the Word of the Lord. After he had finished all his sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. Now a centurion had a servant who was sick and at the point of death, who was highly valued by him. When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him elders of the Jews, asking him to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, He is worthy to have you do this for him, for he loves our nation, and he is the one who built us our synagogue. And Jesus went with them. When he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you, but say the word and let my servant be healed. For I, too, am a man set under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another one, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him, and turning to the crowd that followed him, said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. And when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Our Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning to hear your voice, to have you speak into our lives from your word. We pray that you would help us this morning to be still before your word, to listen to you, to hear you. We pray that you would send your spirit to apply your word to our lives. We pray that you would give us both confidence and humility to sit beneath your word, humility in knowing that we are your creatures and we are broken through and through, but great confidence to know that when you open your mouth to speak, you call worlds into existence. When your son walked this earth, he spoke and the blind received their sight, the deaf were made to hear, the lame were made to walk, and even the dead came out of their tombs. And so we pray that you would help us to hear your voice this morning, assuring us that though we are far more broken than we can imagine, because of Jesus' person and work, we are also far more loved and far more accepted, far more approved of than we could ever have dreamed possible. And so we pray that you would give us this morning the eyes of faith to behold our risen Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we do pray. Amen. Please be seated. Children, <clears throat> excuse me, ages three to six are dismissed to Children's Church so you can make your way to the back of the sanctuary. <clears throat> we are working our way through Luke's gospel by looking at the miracles of Jesus. And over the past few weeks, you've heard me refer to this series as the hands of the king. Um, and it's because I'm borrowing a phrase from Tolkien's Lord of the Rings where he writes that the rightful king will be known by his hands because his hands are the hands of a healer. And so we've been looking together at the rightful king through his healing hands, through his miracles. And this morning we're considering this story in Luke chapter 7. And 
This past week, as I was reading and I was preparing for this morning's sermon, I was introduced to a man named Royal Robbins, and I didn't know who he was. And uh, if you don't either, he was a famous rock climber in the 1960s and the 1970s, and he wrote about his sport in a couple of different books, but I want to read you a quote from an article that he wrote for Sports Illustrated. He wrote, If we are keenly alert and aware of the rock and what we are doing on it, if we are honest with ourselves and our capabilities and weaknesses, if we avoid committing ourselves beyond what we know is safe, then we will climb safely. For climbing is an exercise in reality. He who sees it clearly is on safe ground, regardless of his experience or skill. But he who sees reality as he would like it to be may have his illusion rudely stripped from his eyes when the ground comes up fast. Climbing is an exercise in reality. I I love that little line. It's not so much your physical strength or technique that keeps the rock climbers safe, he's saying. It's intentionally living inside of reality. It's rigorous honesty and commitment to seeing things the way they really are. The story in Luke 7, it rivets our attention upon the faith of this centurion. At the faith of this centurion, Jesus marvels. And I want to suggest to you this morning that what we see here is that faith, like rock climbing, is an exercise in reality. It's an exercise of rigorous honesty and of intentionally living inside of reality. It's seeing and coming to grips with with who we really are and with who God really is. The way to safety and the way to wholeness and the way to the healing power of Jesus in your life is found by getting inside of and living inside of reality. And this passage brings us face-to-face with reality, I think, by showing us three things. Here they are. It shows us the God who shouts, the God who answers, and the God who marvels. And so those are our three points this morning. First, the God who shouts. Here's where we need to face the reality that God often shouts to us in our pain. I want you to notice the, the circumstances surrounding this centurion who sins for Jesus. See, a servant of his was sick and to the point of death. But verse 2, it wasn't just any servant. It was a servant whom he highly valued. See, he really cared for this servant. This servant wasn't just a means to his own ends, right? He cared for him as a person. He loved him. He honored him. But he was about to die, right? And the centurion was facing losing that thing or losing that someone that he highly valued. It's pain and it's sorrow and it's hurt and it's loss and it's fear that leads the centurion to send for Jesus. Blaise Pascal, he wrote that if not for our diversions, we would be bored, and boredom would drive us to seek more solid means of escape. But diversion passes our time and brings us imperceptibly to death. 
Here's what he's saying. He's saying that diversion keeps us distracted from reality. It numbs and it anesthetizes us from the gnawing emptiness and the shame and the brokenness of our lives. Diversion keeps us from from really facing and asking life's big questions. It keeps us from coming to grips with who we are and with coming to grips with who God is, right? So we get busy and we push down and we push away and we seek to escape reality. We get lost in all of our own nearsightedness, our myopia, focusing on the career that we have and that we're trying to succeed in, the endless activities that we're carting our kids to every week. We get distracted by all of our hobbies and all of our entertainments and the busyness. It passes our time and brings us imperceptibly to to our deaths, Pascal writes. Void reality and the ground will eventually come up and shatter your illusions. But do you know what normally stops us in our tracks, what normally wakes us up to deal with reality, it's pain, it's suffering, it's hurt, it's loss, and it's fear. It's when the things we highly value are threatened. All of a sudden, we are snapped out. Sorry about that. Uh, All of a sudden, we are snapped out of our diversions, right, when our child is being rushed to the ER, we sit bolt upright and start paying attention when the, our boss comes in and tells us that there are about to be layoffs. We pay attention when the sins of our spouse doesn't, no longer is it affecting us indirectly, but directly. And when we're nursing the wounds of deep betrayal, when trial knocks on the door of our life, and the only possible answers are sorrow, pain, and suffering that's when God is shouting to us. Now, can God grab our attention and cause us to focus on reality through other means? Of course He can. But read your Bible, because He normally uses pain to shout into our lives and rouse us from our numbness and our distraction. Normally, we don't even recognize Jesus' presence in the boat. Until the winds are howling and the waves are crashing against our boat. That's when we send for Jesus. We'll get to that story in a couple of weeks. But that's when we yell for him to wake him up for his, from his slumber in the boat. If you look at that quote on the front of your bulletin, it comes from C.S. Lewis' book, The Problem of Pain. Pain, writes Lewis, is evil, impossible to ignore. It insists on being attended to, he writes. God whispers in our pleasures, speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pain. The last line of that quote, pain is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. Last Sunday evening, we had a hymn sing here at Grace Community Church, uh, led by our musicians. And if you were here, one of the songs you heard was a song entitled Blessings by Laura Story. And... um, so I'm going to sing a verse for you. I'm Good, I'm glad. Sometimes you're not paying attention. I thought that could scare you and rouse you to deal with reality. Um, anyway, it's a great song. Um, and there's a great verse in that song um, that goes like this. What if my greatest disappointments or the aching of this life is the revealing of a greater thirst this world can't satisfy? What if trials of this life 
the pain, the storms, the hardest nights are your mercies in disguise. God whispers in our pleasures, but He shouts to us in our pain. Listen, it is hard to face this honestly, that we serve and live and move and have our being before a God who will indeed use pain in our lives to wake us up to reality. He comes at times and He threatens the things we highly value and He will wound us with sorrow, with pain, and with hurt in order that we would see His mercy, in order that we would wake up to reality. These are His mercies to us. And before we leave this first point, I I want you to think about something. Paul wrote... I'm going to share with you two passages that have bothered me for a while. Um, But Paul wrote to the Philippians in Philippians 4, verse 6, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Here's the deal. Everything. That, That is a pretty inclusive word, right? In everything. Even the things that hurt the most and scare you the most. He is saying in everything, pray with thanksgiving. Because pain is often God's mercy at work in your life. His megaphone that is shouting into your life and mine. In 1 Thessalonians 5.18, Paul wrote, Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. All. Another pretty inclusive word right? And he put that word there on purpose under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Give thanks in all things because God very often is shouting at you in the moment of your pain and your sorrow and your fear. He wakes us up to reality with it and he sends us running to Jesus. Many times God's biggest kindness to you in your life is in his not giving you what you want, that you think will make you happy. His kindness is often found in him not fixing the circumstances of your life because often his kindness is found in the pain and in the disappointment that he's using to shout into your life to wake you up to reality. And we need to learn how we are to give thanks in everything, in all circumstances, and listen for his voice shouting to us in the sorrow and the loss. Okay, second, let's keep moving. And the second point will be pretty brief, but I do want you to see in this passage the God who answers. And all I want us to do for just a moment is to sit with what I think are some incredibly sweet words in this passage. They're very plain, they're very brief, and they're very simple. And they come in verse 6 where it says, And Jesus went with them. Look, that's the centurion. He sent for Jesus in his pain, and Jesus answered. He went with them. Look, every scholar who looks at this passage realizes that the point of this story actually isn't the miracle in this story. The point of this story is the faith of the centurion. One scholar writes, The heart of the story is not the healing of the slave. That's important, because without it, the story wouldn't exist. But it's just the framework for what Luke wants to highlight. What matters is the centurion's faith. It it, it is the centurion's faith that causes Jesus 
to marvel. So what is it that faith does? Faith calls on the God who answers. Faith reaches through the fog and the pain. Faith reaches through the tears of your sorrow to grab hold of Jesus, to call on Jesus. Faith reaches through the waves of all of your fear that are crashing against you to the reality of who God is, that He is a God who is present and He is a God who answers. And Jesus went with them, Luke wrote. I do want to be brief in this point, but I don't want you to miss this. Jesus is the God who answers, and His answer is to move towards pain, towards brokenness, to move towards the sorrow and the fear and the misery of the centurion. Do you, do you know this about who God really is? That He is a God who dives in headfirst, without a word even. He went with them. Look, those are incredibly sweet words. Because the God who shouts to us in our pain and our suffering and our sorrow, He is also the God who answers by moving towards us in our brokenness and our sin to meet us where we are. I have a friend who was, this is years ago, but um, he was a camp counselor at a camp that I worked at one summer uh, called Alpine in Alabama, and he worked on the waterfront uh, while I worked somewhere else. But he came away with this great story. Um, they were One day they were on the waterfront, and you know, the waterfront's where they would do all their water activities, canoeing and kayaking and all that kind of stuff. And so one day he has organized a relay race for the boys in the camp. And so he has them all line up in two lines on the dock, and they would jump off the dock one at a time, and they would swim around a buoy that was out in the water, and they would come back, and upon getting back to the dock, the next boy would go, and so on and so forth. You know how relay races work. But um, they decided to make it a little bit more interesting, and so they had the boys swim with some clothes on. Um, and so instead of just getting back to the dock and tagging the next boy to go, they would have to climb onto the dock and they would have to take, uh, they would have to take these pants off and the shirt off and these socks off and pass them to the next boy who would put them on and jump back in. And so everything was going great and they were having fun. They were laughing at each other and that sort of thing until it got to this one kid who was the smallest kid in camp, kind of the runt of the camp, right? And he slipped the pants on over his swimsuit and he, he put his, the shirt on and he put the, the socks on now heavy with water, right? And so he jumped in off of the dock. And he just went underneath the water. And everybody's kind of, what's going on? Is he swimming under the water? We haven't seen this uh, yet. Uh, but he's just disappeared. And my friend looks over the edge of the dock. And he said all that he could see was he saw a little nose and a pair of lips just breach the surface just long enough to gasp, help. <laughs> and he went back down underneath the water, and so my friend dove in, saved the little boy's life. What does faith do? It calls on the God who answers. Even if it's just a nose and a pair of lips, it cries out, help. 
Faith, it calls on the God who answers and the God who dives headfirst into the waters of brokenness, sin, and misery, and death to meet you there and to rescue you. And listen, before we get to our last point, I, I want to encourage you to meditate and to reflect on the incarnation out of season. Right? The incarnation it refers to the mystery of God becoming man, of Jesus taking on flesh, right? of God coming towards us in our brokenness. It ref- I want you to reflect on it out of season. In other words, not just at Christmas time. C.S. Lewis in his book, he's getting a lot of press this morning, but C.S. Lewis in his book, Miracles, he calls the incarnation the grand miracle. He writes this, The central miracle asserted by Christians is the incarnation. They say God became man, and every other miracle prepares for this or exhibits this or results from this. And he went with them. I would say results from and exhibits the mystery of God becoming man, of God moving towards us in our brokenness and in our sin. He came rushing towards us, lost and rebellious as we were in our sin, sick and sore, weak and wounded. He dove in. God grabs our attention and wakes us up to reality by shouting at us in our pain, but he answers when faith calls upon him. And this answer brings us face to face with reality. God himself answers by going under the waters of sin and brokenness and even death in order that he would come up again and with him bring the whole ruined world up. Finally, I want us to talk about the God who marvels in this passage. You know, if you read through the Gospels, you will find that Jesus is almost always shocking and surprising and amazing the people. With all the things he was saying, with all the things he was doing, he was shocking and amazing the people. But it is rare, it is very rare that Jesus himself is ever amazed. In fact, the only other time in the Gospels that we read that Jesus was amazed was when he went to his hometown of Nazareth and he was amazed at the people's lack of faith. But here, he is amazed, and he marvels at the faith of this centurion. So what's so amazing about his faith? Jesus marvels because this man saw the reality of his unworthiness. The Jewish elders, they had gone to Jesus, and they said, he is worthy for you to do this for him. He loves our nation. He built our synagogue for us. You know, he loves our religion. He loves us. He's so worthy. He's kind. He's generous. He's worthy. But that wasn't the centurion. That wasn't what he was saying. The centurion, by the way, was a Roman uh, foot soldier. And, th- and that means a-, a few things. It means he was a part of the winning team. Rome had come in, and they had conquered, and he was part of the occupying government of that day. 
Now, not only was he in a position of power, but apparently this centurion was also in a position of great status because the Jewish elders liked him, and they didn't like very many of the Romans. And they thought well of him. But it wasn't just that. He was also apparently pretty wealthy. I mean, he paid for and he built their synagogue for them. But when he heard Jesus was coming, he sent his friends ahead. And he said, verses 6 and 7, Don't trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you, but say the word and let my servant be healed. He's saying, I know it looks like I have power and I have position and I have wealth. I know it looks like that, but the truth is, the reality is, I'm unworthy to even have you set foot in my house. Saving faith, the kind of faith that moves Jesus to action and moves Jesus to marvel, it is a faith that sees the reality of our unworthiness. And hopefully you see the contrast in this story between the centurion and the Jewish elders. They are arguing the centurion's merits. Here's his resume, Jesus, but not the centurion. He sees through even his own resume to the reality of his unworthiness. But that's not all. Because not only does this centurion see the reality of his unworthiness, he also sees the reality of Jesus' grace. Kent Hughes writes, We must also remember that while Christianity that ignores sin becomes sick, Christianity that sees very little but sin is a type of slavery. It has forgotten grace. Let me show you what's amazing about this centurion. He doesn't say, Jesus, I'm unworthy, so don't worry about my petty little request. Though it looks very different, if he had said that, he would have been doing the same thing as the Jewish elders. Only those with the right merits can expect Jesus to work in their lives. Only those who have the right resume, right, can expect Jesus to come and work in their lives. But this centurion sees the reality of Jesus' grace. And so he says to Jesus, I know I'm not worthy to even have you set foot in my house. But please do everything I ask. Just say the word. I know I'm unworthy, therefore I'm pleading with you on the basis of your grace and not my merit. That is faith that causes Jesus to marvel. One more thing to mention here, and then I'll try to land this plane. The centurion, he also saw in this passage the reality of Jesus' authority. His authority over sin and death. Not only did he see Jesus' grace, but he also saw Jesus' authority. You can see that his reasoning in verse 8. For I too am a man set under authority, with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. And here's the simple reasoning. It's chain of command reasoning. He calls himself 
a man under authority. On the emperor's authorities, generals were given orders, and generals passed those orders down to centurions who passed those orders down to someone else. But listen, I want you to understand what he's saying here. He is saying, Jesus, I recognize that you also are under authority. You see that? I too am a man under authority. And if you just give the word, my servant will be healed. This is important. The centurion saw his unworthiness. He saw Jesus' grace. But his theology and his Christology was far from perfect. I mean, he recognizes that Jesus is under authority, which is different from saying, Jesus, I see that you are God in the flesh and that you have authority in and of yourself. You are not a servant of the king, but you are, in fact, the rightful king. He's not saying that. But still Jesus marvels at him and does what this man asks. So what do we do with that? How do we make sense of that and process it? Listen, I want you to see and understand as we we begin to close this morning that it is not the perfection of your faith or the strength of your faith or the technique of your faith that matters. What matters is reality. What matters is the object of your faith. And I want to end here because I want you to be amazed at Jesus' amazement. He is amazed and marveling over an incomplete and imperfect faith. He is marveling over, imperfect though it is, that this centurion would place all his hope upon Jesus and upon him alone. Imperfect as it was. Let me give you one more rock climbing illustration. It only seems fitting since we started there. Uh, I stole this from Tim Keller. But then I want to end with a quote that I'm going to read to you. Imagine two rock climbers. um, They're climbing a mountain, and they slip, and they fall, and they find themselves on a very narrow edge. And the only way back is to choose between one of two outcroppings that have come, come out from the mountain. And so as they're standing here, these two rock climbers are, are discussing this, this problem that's before them and discussing which route they should take. And the one rock climber, the first rock climber, he says, I have full assurance that that outcropping over there, that outcropping will hold me up. It will be firm and it will be strong. I believe it with all my heart. And the other rock climber says, I think maybe this rock. I'm, I'm not sure at all but I think it's this way. So the first rock climber steps out in his total assurance and faith, and the rock crumbles beneath his weight, and he falls and he dies. The second rock climber, (laughs) sorry kids, um, the second rock climber steps out on the rock climbing, and he's shaking, and he's nervous, and he's scared, and he's doubting, but he steps. And when he steps... It holds him up, and he is safe. Now listen, who was saved? (laughs) Right, The man who believed with all his heart? No. It, It was the man who believed and put his trust, wavering though it was, in the right rock. It's not the strength or the perfection of your faith that matters. It is the object of your faith. 
Let me read to you a quote from the theologian Horatius Bonner's book, The Everlasting Righteousness. In this quote, he's imagining an Israelite, an Old Testament Israelite, who has come to offer sacrifice at the temple, at the tabernacle. And he writes, What should we have said to the Israelite who, on bringing his lamb to the tabernacle, should puzzle himself with questions as to the right mode of laying his hands on the head of the victim, and who should refuse to take any comfort from the sacrifice because he was not sure whether he had laid them aright, on the proper place, in the right direction, with adequate pressure, or in the best attitude? Should we not have told him that his own actings concerning the lamb were not the lamb, and yet he was speaking as if they were? Should we not have told him that the lamb was everything and his touch, nothing as to virtue or recommendation. Should we not have told him to be of good cheer, not because he laid his hands on the victim in the most approved fashion, but because they had touched that victim, however lightly and imperfectly, and thereby said, let this lamb stand for me, answer for me, and die for me. The point for him to settle was not, was my touch right or wrong, light or heavy, But was it the touch of the right lamb, the lamb appointed by God for the taking away of sin? I love this quote. I've used it many times with many people. We are so often concerned and preoccupied with our faith. Is it strong enough? Is it pure enough? Is it big enough? Jesus marvels here. Not that this man's faith is perfect. It isn't. Jesus marvels because this man, he has placed his faith upon the right object. How much faith did the centurion need? Just enough. Just enough to send for Jesus. O joy that seekest me through pain. We sang earlier, I trace the rainbow through the rain. Would you listen to the God who shouts to you through your pain to wake you up to the reality of your unworthiness and to the reality of Jesus and His grace? Just a nose and a pair of lips will do to cry out help. If you send for Him, if you place your weak, imperfect faith in the right Lamb, the Lamb appointed by God for the taking away of the sin of the world, if you sin for Him, you will see that He is the God who answers. He is the God who has moved towards us in our brokenness, sin, and misery to save us. Come to Him. The hands of the King are the hands of a healer. Come to Him and find freedom to rest. His yoke is easy and His burden is light. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this story. We thank you for this miraculous story, which rivets our attention not so much on the miracle, but on the faith of the centurion. And Father, it is our prayer that you would indeed wake us up to reality, that you would use the pain and the sorrow and the disappointments and the loss that we have experienced in this life 
to drive us to see reality. To see the unworthiness of ourselves and the worthiness of Jesus. To see the reality of our brokenness and to see the reality of Your grace. Father, help us. Help us in the midst of our doubts. Help us to cry out, even like the man who came to Jesus saying, I believe, help my unbelief. Father, that we would find assurance, deep assurance for ourselves, that it is not the strength or the purity or perfection of our faith that matters most, but it is the object of our faith. It is the Lamb. It is the rock who is appointed to take away the sin of the world. Drive us to Him, we pray, that we might call out to Him by faith. For it's in His name that we do pray. Amen.